This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, I realize it's a paradox, but the more we understand the biblical writings in their own context— the more relevant they become to us. For too long, I think, preachers and teachers have succumbed to the temptation to make the readings immediately applicable to our time and our consciousness without understanding what they meant in their own time and what they meant to the first audience that heard them. But actually, the more we do that, strangely, the more relevant they become to us. The readings for today, I think, are a very good example of this principle. Our first reading is from the prophet Baruch. Baruch, you remember, was a kind of secretary to the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah and Baruch lived at the most disastrous period in Israelite history, the time of the Babylonian exile. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, wasn't the... Wasn't the uh, captivity in Egypt the worst period? I would say no. I think what haunts the Old Testament imagination most is this terrible period when the Babylonians swept through Judea, killing many. They laid siege to Jerusalem and then destroyed the city, burned down the temple to the ground, and then carried off the elite of the nation into slavery. I've said before, think of September 11th times 100 to get some sense of what this meant for Old Testament Jews. They're chosen people, God's special people. Jerusalem was David's capital. The temple built by David's son Solomon was the center of Israelite worship. They imagined, they dreamed that one day all peoples of the world would come to that temple to worship. And then the nation is destroyed. Jerusalem is sacked. The temple burned to the ground. Its priests and elite carried away. Friends, it's as though the whole bottom fell out of the Israelite religious imagination. Think of something like the United States being conquered, Washington being destroyed, the Capitol building, the White House raised to the ground, our political leadership carried off into slavery. Now, that only gives you, though, I think a hint of it because the Israelite uh, consciousness had this religious sensibility. It was not only a political disaster, it was that. It was also a theological disaster. It's as though God had abandoned his people. That's the setting now. That's the world of Jeremiah and Baruch. But then what do we hear? 
Baruch tells Jerusalem to take off its robe of mourning. See, that's what they all were wearing. Anyone that was left behind, all they were wearing was a robe of mourning. But take that off, he says, and look to the east. The east? Why the east? That's where Babylon was. In other words, look in the direction from which the exiles would return. He calls out, still now hoping against hope. He had no clear guarantee here, but hoping against hope that God would act. God would reestablish justice. And so he says, up, Jerusalem, stand on the heights. Look to the east for the exiles to return. Much of Israelite history and theology has this quality of hoping against hope, of being saved in the final reel, of trusting in God when things are bleakest. Though he delays, though he acts according to his own rhythm, God will deliver his people. That's the prophetic message. Okay, now fast forward from this reading about 500 years to the late 20s of the first century. We go from Baruch to Luke, another prophet who's telling a similar story. Listen to how Luke's account commences. In the 15th year of the rule of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was procurator of Judea, Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, I know for us, 2,000 years later, most of these are just names, some better known than others. But to first century Jews hearing this story, there was a whole agonizing narrative of oppression behind those names. They knew them very well. Tiberius Caesar the successor of Caesar Augustus, a typically ruthless dictator, violent, capricious, domineering. Pontius Pilatus, Pontius Pilate, a name that we know pretty well. Tiberius's equally ruthless and violent local representative. Headquartered in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast, but with a base in Jerusalem as well, That's where the trouble started. Governor Pilate was willing to bring the Roman standards into the temple, idols as far as the Jews were concerned. He was only too willing to crucify Jews by the thousands who opposed him. Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip, his brother. These were the sons of Herod the Great, that half-Jewish client king, whom Augustus propped up to govern Judea. Fearsome, hateful, ruthless, so violent he murdered his own sons. The story of the massacre of the innocents, by the way, is perfectly congruent with what we know of Herod the Great. His sons, mentioned here, were hated by the Jews for betraying them and oppressing them. Then we hear of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. Oh, the temple was supposed to be a place of prayer, supposed to be the center of Jewish life and culture, but as the prophets had seen long before, it had become corrupt. 
A major part of its corruption was its co-optation by a few rival families who battled politically for control of it. Annas and Caiaphas, they were a couple of these petty local religious operators. Luke is mentioning here, it's so important to get this, the whole hierarchy, political and religious, that governed Jewish life in the first century. Now here's the point. Having mentioned all of them, Luke says, the word of God was spoken to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. To, to, to whom? Where? He mentions all the high and mighty, all these great political religious leaders who had been oppressing the people. And then he says, God did not speak his word to them. Do you see what a tremendous word of judgment this is. We're going to miss it, but they didn't miss it. The word of God came not to this hierarchy, but it came to John, this outsider, this fellow who was outside of the political and religious system. Not someone living in an impressive palace, not someone residing in the temple, but John, in the desert. So it's a tremendous act of judgment on the establishment. But then we listen to John and we realize what? God is about to act. Just as long ago, during the time of exile, Baruch says, stand up, Jerusalem. Look to the east. God is going to act and bring the exiles home. John now, in a very similar vein, is announcing that God will act again, this time to bring the people back from a sort of spiritual exile. Listen to him speak now. Make ready the way of the Lord. Clear him a straight path. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be leveled. The winding shall be made straight and the rough ways smooth. What's he saying? He's saying, my job is to prepare for the mighty coming of the Lord. My job is to build the highway that will facilitate his arrival. A change is coming. A revolution's on the way. A disaster, the destruction of that old establishment is about to happen. And so, prepare ye the way of the Lord. He's, he's speaking in the same language and cadence of Baruch long ago. I know you're going through a time of oppression. I've just named all your oppressors. But believe me, God is going to act. And so prepare yourself. What's the manner of preparation? We hear it's a baptism of repentance. Baptism, an immersion in water, would have reminded any first century Jew of the Exodus. When the Israelites passed through the Red Sea, leaving the ways of slavery behind, God would humble the powers of their time as he once humbled Egypt, as he once humbled Babylon. This is a subversive revolutionary message. 
And then repentance. John calls for a baptism of repentance. The word used here is metanoia. Metanous. Going beyond the mind you have. How central this is. Jesus makes it central to his own preaching. See, how our minds are conditioned by the fallen world. How our expectations are shaped and stunted by what has gone before. You see what Luke is saying, what John is saying. The world of Tiberius and Pilate, the world of Herod's sons, the world of Annas and Caiaphas, this old world of oppression has shaped our imaginations, has stunted our hopes. It's time John is saying, for a new mind, a new set of eyes, a new kind of expectation, God is about to act. Wake up. God is about to act. Be ready. God is about to act. Stop living in the old world conditioned by the ways of oppression and violence. God is about to act, and so make way the path for him. God is about to act, and so pass through the Red Sea of baptism. We listen to Baruch today. We listen to John today. We hear the exact same message. Get ready. And God bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Father Robert Barron is combating the crisis of faith in our culture. Father Barron's expanded website can deepen your faith, give you new insights into scriptures, and help you become a better Christian. Go to wordonfire.org and tap into Father Barron's compelling videos, sermons, articles, and much more. Wordonfire.org. Connect with one of the Catholic Church's best messengers every day, everywhere.